Blog Talk Radio. to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the Book Speak Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates. The first two books of the Godseed Saga blend fantasy, science fiction, a dystopian landscape, and at times, dark humor. Ranmar, the first seed, and Chinta, the second seed, are two separate tales with a parallel, and they are from the hand of M.J. Souter, author, musician, craftsman, pagan minister, and a number of other trades. And he joins us today. Uh, M.J., Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I think we have to um, sort of go back to where we first knew each other. I believe we first met uh, at a Pagan Pride event back in 2010 up in uh, the northeast part of Pennsylvania, and that was during the days of my old band, Altira. And then we, another version of us played another event up in that way around 2015. So we certainly knew each other musically. I, I don't know... How how much you recall from that? But I, I remember some some pretty interesting things. <laughs> the the time that sticks in my head as the first time I remember, which I don't have the best memory for things, was the Miss Musica Festival. Yep, uh, where I performed and ran sound for you. Yes, uh, twenty fifteen. And that was the last performance of the the Splinter of Altira, which was the Dharma Fools. Jen Shearer and I mm-hmm. were there, and I'll tell you what, that was a lot of fun because because uh, there were so many great people. You know, S.J. Tucker played, Betsy Tinney was there, mm-hmm. Elaine Silver who was there. You guys played, and I just remember you just keeping everything together, which was uh, no mean feat. And if we didn't thank you enough for it, we, we do now. <laughs> I appreciate it. It was, it was an interesting situation where I ended up having to make a lot of different sounds. Well, there was that, and you know that's, uh, that kind of comes with the territory, running sound for any kind of show, and then everybody's different mm-hmm. needs and that sort of thing. But uh I just basically remember being absolutely petrified about 15 minutes before showtime and mm-hmm. having to replace uh having to replace one of the strings on my guitar at the last minute and I'm not good at that and I'm doing that and I've been listening to everybody else perform before us and I'm just like oh my god <laughs> But as I often What's that? I said, you guys sounded wonderful. Well, thank you. No, it was cool because I just said to Jen, I just said, we're just going to go out there and we're just going to drive it. And she said, yep. And and that's the thing. If, you're, if I'm not nervous before a show or before an interview, if I'm not nervous, then I'm not going to do well. So, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And uh, getting to meet some really nice people and reconnecting with folks like you was really awesome. So, anyway... 
let us go to this. Um, Ranmar. Now, I found the lead-off in this series, uh, the Godseed Saga, an immediate grab. And I'm going to need you to explain a little of this. Um, okay. The opening pages. A lawyer finds himself tied to a rock in the desert, and the first thing he sees is a seven-foot creature that he thinks is an ant. Yep. I love this. <laughs> Please tell us a little about Ranmar and and how our hero, Edward, ends up in such a state. Well, Edward, at his core, not when we meet him, Edward at his core is a very loving, caring person. However, he's a little insecure, and his insecurity mm-hmm. manifests in a need to win, which takes him down a dark path in his previous life. When he's an attorney. Yeah. He's specifically a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the immediate assumption of how he gets into the world of dragons, spoiler alert, not going to get explained for a while, but is wrong. He thinks that hmm. somebody from his world pushed him there. But oh. he shows up naked in the middle of a city in front of a group of Kitterling ambassadors who he immediately thinks are monsters. Mm-hmm. Because what would you do if you saw a seven-foot cat centaur and a humanoid cat reaching for you? He panics. They take it as an insult. There's no communication because he can't speak with them. And his day gets bad. <laughs> well, it was really, it was very interesting because it was just like this, it's it's this hellacious situation right at the beginning, which is, which is of course, the, the fantastic grab of the whole thing. And, um, you know, and this is the thing you talk about, Edward. Yes, Edward's situation is, and as that story has gone on, we have these wonderful flashbacks. Um, you jumped back and forth. This is something I do in my own writing. You jump back and forth between Edward's, the former life he knew, and now this life he is being forced to live. And he realizes that he has got to adapt pretty quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that he is completely ill-prepared for it. Mm-hmm. You know, all, you know, he is used to the finer things in life. He's used to living in a modern society, and they're hunter-gatherers. Right. You know. Uh, and Hunter, you know, the first character we meet, if, if you saw a giant praying mantis climb out of a hole at you, Depending on how dehydrated you are, you might mistake it for an ant at first. Yep. But, you know, he's just not ready for it. That's it. And there's the absolute shock and horror of, you know, and and of course it's like, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> <laughs> Part of my brain has said that somewhere in his mind, he actually kind of felt like he deserved it. Right. Um, like I said, he did not end up where he wanted to be, which is a 
really the major crux of the story. All of the dragons and magic and everything else is set dressing. Mm-hmm. It's the story is about Edward getting back to the person that he knew he should have been in honor of his parents and in honor of what he feels is right. And, you know, to be taken completely out of his element, almost killed immediately. And then have something that he honestly thought was going to kill him, offer him kindness. Just blew his mind. Yes. And it is very interesting to Hunter, as he calls him, um, I love the sense of humor that that Hunter provides. And the thing is, they don't really speak. They're, it's more of a telepathic sort of thing. A hunter yeah. kind of reads his thoughts. Yeah. The mechanism is he reads the intentional thoughts. The, the way that tele- telepathy works in that world, telepathy, when you speak, you're putting the intention of your, of your words out there as well as the, the sound. And that's what he gets. He, he supposedly he could read Edward's mind, but he'd have to actively do it. But that's where you get the the mistranslations and the not understanding the sarcasm. Because later on, Hunter uses sarcasm. Mm-hmm. You know, but Hunter's a so, character. Yes, he was, and it's like he sort of enters the spirit of it. And as you say, yes, he 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 uses sarcasm. He he adapts. To Edward rather quickly and, mm-hmm. and seems to sort of that, that relationship kind of forges itself all the way through. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a thing, too. Um, there are so many wondrous creatures in this first book. Um, one of the interesting – now, Hunter is what's called an Enten, and you use yeah. a number of you, – you come up with a number of different terms just just for the sake of argument. What is an Enten? Um. An entin is a humanoid insect blend. All of the species that fit that are called the entin. And they're a smaller group of the wild breed. Um, and in his case, he's a praying mantis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when when Edward looks at it, he's just seeing a giant green and blue praying mantis. He, he's about seven foot tall, all told. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like, I, it's like, great, I'm about to be eaten by this. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's and it's like we see these other these other races in this land, the Kitterlings, who you spoke of, and these are the these are the group mm-hmm. that that Ranmar eventually uh, he gets the name Ranmar, and yeah. he eventually falls in with them, and they were a cat-like race. I find them I found them really fascinating. They are my oldest kid's favorite species in, in the series. Okay, uh, the Kitterling. I wanted a race that created a deeper level of partnership. And when when I was originally coming up with the races uh, for what was a, started as a game, um, the concept of 
having the male from Centaurian having four legs and two arms and the females being bipedal and just the, the different mechanisms they could use that for, especially as a hunter, as a hunter species, right. you know, having, having your, your wife or your sister or, or your best friend ride your back on the hunt. And with mm-hmm. cats, they're so agile and so balanced, it would be so fluid. Um, but that meant I had to come up with, you know, what did they use to hunt? Where do they live? It evolved, and when I'm when I'm building my species and my races, I go pretty quickly into what's their culture. Right. And with the kitterling, cats can't eat a lot of vegetable matter. They do eat some, but if they yeah. eat too much, they'll get fat. So, what are they going to eat? Given the techno the technology level that they're at. You know, what are they going to eat? What's their cuisine like? What's their music like? What what do they do when they're not hunting? What do they do when they're not, you know, at work? How do they play? Yeah. And most early sports are, in a way, training for hunting. Right. Or training for the primary culture, the primary thing within that culture. And I, I had friends that played lacrosse that I had met through a medieval reenactment group and they were telling me how the lacrosse moves translated beautifully to um, weapon for weapons forms. I'm like, that's it. What would lacrosse be like if you could ride to your teammate? And then building, building from there. And then it's like, how do you clothe uh, a male kiddling? How do you clothe something, clothe something that's, you know, got two backs? You know, what are mm. they going to wear? How are they going to do that? Um, and then... And, yeah, keep going. This is, this is fascinating. <laughs> well, one of the things that I did want to throw at Edward right up front, because it's going to be a, con- a, a constant in the book, is the morality of the world that he comes from, which is very much like our world, is mm-hmm. not the morality of that world. Right. Especially when it comes to the wild breed and the kidderling and the other Cosrin races, because they were developed to exist as a, as a fail-safe. Other races got too decimated. Mm. So a lot of concepts that we hold really rigidly to, they don't, you know, and how do you keep small bands from becoming inbred? Well, you get the tribes together, mm-hmm. you know, and while it's not blatantly said, you get the tribes together so that people from different tribes can meet and you could expand the gene pool. Right. But yeah, it, coming up with the cultures is, is absolutely my favorite part. Now you said that this started as a game. Please take us back to the beginning of this, because I have questions about the Kitterlings and, and other groups. But the beginning of this is is really the amazing part, of course. I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
back when okay. it went into a three-ring binder and the six-sided die had pips. I got into a medieval reenactment group that did full-speed, full-force combat. Wow. Once that happened, and we were using rattan for swords. We weren't using steel. Once that happened, I realized that the combat system for, from Dungeons & Dragons was just ludicrous. So I needed to fix mm-hmm. that. And, well, I didn't agree with some of their decisions on elves and dwarves. And I had a lot of friends that loved the concept of animal hybrid characters. Um, My personal spiritual path uses a lot of animal totem spirit, spirituality. And I wanted to include that. I wanted to bring some of that into it. And I just started making changes. Well, after the first year or so, it wasn't the same game. So we just chucked the original rules and I started writing completely new rules for it. Oh, oh wow. we, we had a group of about 10 people gamed off and on for close to 15 years. And it all happened in the same world. So by the time, by the time 2000 came around, I had this gigantic world where there were towns that I knew the name of the bartender at, you know, and then I got hurt. Um, I was working with special needs adults and and we had a, we had an altercation Mm. and in trying to protect one of them from hurting himself, I slipped a disc in my neck and was told I wasn't allowed to do anything for about It, well, that lasted actually, it was supposed to last for about six weeks. It ended up lasting for about 10 years. But oh, I just started writing short stories about this game world to take up the time. Mm-hmm. And the, when I hit Edward, when I, when I found him, the, the story was supposed to end with Crail. That's where it was supposed to end in my head. By the time I got to that point, there was a rough outline of the whole Godseed saga in my head. And my characters mm-hmm. had started doing things that I didn't plan on them doing, which at first I found very disconcerting. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's that's the same thing that happened with the Sweet Dream series. I mean, uh, only the first book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, is out, and I wrote, my plan was to write one story. And then mm-hmm. it's like I had the ending before I had the beginning. And mm-hmm. here's here's like three musical legends doing something in a space out of time that shouldn't be happening. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, well, where did everyone go? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, Suddenly, there's questions about okay, well, where's what's our main character really doing now? And suddenly, it just keeps writing itself. And there's more things for the characters to do. There's more things for these individuals to come back and do. And mm-hmm. it just kept going. And I'm assuming that the did did this start to write itself, or did you did you feel the fits and starts that I did at the beginning of my series? <laughs> It took me about three years to write up until up into where we end the little first story with Crail. Mm-hmm. 
so it was fits and starts up until that point. Um, I had a major, major life change during that time. It involved a divorce. The injury we found out was much worse than we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, some really nasty depression. And I recovered through that. And I met my current wife, Lisa. Mm. And when we when we moved in together, we made the agreement that I was going to spend my mornings just writing. And once I found the voice of Edward, where he knew what he was doing, what he what his goal was, not so much what he was doing, because he never actually knows what he's doing. <laughs> then it just came out. And it was not uncommon for me for, for for Lisa to get home or or for me to go out into the dining room and look at her and go, Oh my god, I can't believe they just did this. This is gonna make it so much more complicated. <laughs> um, well there there's a lot of that in this story. Um I wanted to ask you, um mm-hmm. now one of the characters who really stands out in the Ketterlings tribe is Keisha. And mm-hmm. is, she is a very intriguing one, and in, she's very well crafted in terms of her personality and who she is. Tell us about where she came from. She came from herself. Um, originally, she was just a playful foil, but I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make her a foil and... The you know, before I had even decided where the short story was going before it became a book. Once Crail came into the picture, when I wrote that, I realized that no, she's a really she's she's got to be a deep character. She's got to be an important character. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing, I'm sitting there and it's like, what are what are each of these people doing in this situation? And she makes the statement at one point that. She's the strongest person there. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize until I think it's around the middle of the book. Yeah. That her strength, you know, everybody, you know, it's mentioned before that the strength comes from her love for Edward. That's not it. Her strength comes from the fact that she pulled herself out of the hole that Crail had pushed her into emotionally. Mm-hmm. And she's just got that sense of strength. And most of the women in my life, um, I come from a, a big Boston Italian family. <laughs> and the women in my family are a force of nature. Every single mm-hmm. one of them. I mean, and that needed to be depicted. Those, right. you know, women like that who 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 aren't who, who are with other people because they want to be, not because they have to be. Right. They have their own agency and are willing to share that agency. And men who are willing to share their agency with women like that and aren't intimidated by that. Um, Kesh is the first time we really see that. What looks like it can be fun and playful sometimes gets to fun and playful because they've paid for it. You know, 
they've earned enough strength that they don't have to be scared anymore. Hmm. Which is why when Crail does show up, it's so heartbreaking for Edward because he sees her start to revert back, you know, and he sees that strength start to someone try to take that strength from her. Now, we must talk about Crail as he, he has the antagonistic role, but he also serves a real purpose. Tell us about him. I grew up in a town that is very much right side of the tracks, wrong side of the tracks. There are, there are people who are the right kind of people and people who are the wrong kind of people. Yep. A lot of the people that I met who are the right kind of people and continue to be that way are just very entitled. And I don't deal well with entitled people. Crail is narcissistic. Power hungry. Anything he does, he does for his own benefit only. Um, right. He was originally her tribal chief, so he was in the ultimate position of power. Over and he used the combination of that political power and the fact that as a male kidderling, he's probably got two hundred pounds on her mm-hmm. to force himself onto her. You know, and so he shows back up, assuming that he's meeting with Alhid to make arrangements for the tribe meet. That's why he ends up seeing them. He now knows that she's staying with Nassan and Bashim, and Bashim, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so much fun when you're not sure how what the names of your characters are. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I find myself doing that a lot too. I'm like, wait, what was her name again? <laughs> He he shows up, and his first goal is to insult them. Mm-hmm. Ron Mar, being the cocky SOB he still is at that point, <laughs> snarks at him and picks a fight, not really understanding what that meant. That in this world, that if you pick that kind of a fight, it's you're talking about people's lives. Right. And, you know, Crail's first first act is to lash out at the family and blatantly threaten more assault on on Kesha. Yeah. And, you know, at first, Ron Mar doesn't know what he's doing, what he did, but that just means that his life, once again, he'd finally gotten... Okay, know what I'm doing now. Nope, slap shot. We're going to a different direction. <laughs> and that's where Ranmar has to really learn how to adapt and mm-hmm. realize he doesn't know everything. Right. But also start to realize that the tools that he had in his original world, he still has. They just mean something different here. Yep. But it also sets up the realization that he's not what the book implies he is at first. Yeah. And we start, we start understanding that there's, there's something really big going on here. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it's sort of the finding that the world isn't what you think it is. And your world is 
even less than you think. And it's like it's like there's this door that's open to him to understand himself a lot better mm-hmm. than he ever could have. And it, it triggers a lot of the, the dreams that he had as a kid. It triggers mm-hmm. the loss of his parents. Um, where he got that drive to be stronger mm-hmm. and the misunderstanding of what that strength had to be, which is what led to the, I have to win, which is what eventually led to him ending up a criminal defense lawyer and literally defending people for the mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, considering his father was a police officer and his mother was a nurse, that's not where young Edward would have gone. That wasn't, that's not really who he is. Mm -hmm. You know what this does is it it leads me into, I mean, this is such an adventure in, in itself. Ranmar's journey to himself and to find Mm -hmm. what he will be. Um, that's sort of it, it's sort of a revolving figure uh, in book two and Chainta mm-hmm. and her situation. I mean, this was much darker, and oh. I, I mean the parallels are are really interesting in that your, your protagonist is Jane, and her history before ending up in her own land is very familiar, and I think it would be more familiar to most. Uh, ca- even the more casual readers, but um, mm-hmm. th- like I said, there's parallels. But please, let's let's go into Jane and 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 where she ends up. When I first met um, my wife Lisa, mm-hmm. her mother had just lost her best friend to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, her best friend's name was Jane. Her husband's name was Richard. That is all I will say about their relationship, but the name and and the the whole, yes, it's Dick and Jane, stuck in my head. And I wanted to do an homage to all of these women that I know that had been pushed down. And Jane didn't know how not to be a victim. There was no question in anybody's mind in her world that she was loving, that she was beautiful. She was all these things that women were supposed to be. And then she ended up with an abusive husband. And we meet her in the worst way you can meet a person. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'll be honest. It, writing book two sent me into therapy. Mm. It was one of the hardest processes I've ever had to do. She just wants to be somewhere else. She just wants this to not be happening again. Yeah. And then she wakes up naked in a cave on the edge of a desert and is glad for it. You know, she eventually does find help. But that that passage through the desert, the the you know the hallucinations she she runs into when she gets poisoned by the cactus, um, mm-hmm. 
and then the final decision to give up, sure that she's going to die. I've seen, but I've seen a lot of women go through that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, to honor that. One of, one of my biggest challenges with Jane was, how do I write this and not make it a guy's version of a woman? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of, I had a couple of beta readers that I could look at and I go, do I sound like a guy writing for a girl? Um, and fortunately, my friends are very honest with me when, when I need to change something. So. Right. But, you know, the the heartbreak and the hopelessness that she starts out in and that it, it effectively just gets worse. Every decision she makes is probably the wrong one. It, 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 it's like it, it can't get any worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and it becomes surreal. And you – Again, once she finally finds a kind of belongs, she gets her footing with the orc tribe. She's starting to wrap her brain around their culture, which is drastically different. Mm -hmm. And this is growing inside her that is the opposite of what she was. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this power for for her to process that in, in what she's forced to do to gain standing within the tribe um, is it was really hard. It was a, it's a scary place. I actually, I, I read them earlier this, this week just because I knew we were doing this and I, I wanted to be everything to be fresh in my mind. Every yeah. time I read, Blanca, I, I question my own sanity. I'm like, there is something really wrong with you, dude. Well, I'll tell you what. It's it's the same kind of thing as when I started to write the second book in Sweet Dream Series, which is going to be called Call It Love. I had mm-hmm. to touch on some of these very same issues. But it mm-hmm. was like, I can't write about my own issues yet. I was not ready to do it. And this is back in like 2007, 2008. And I took experiences from one of my former bandmates and from one of my oldest friends mm-hmm. and sort of started to – and it was the same thing. I was like, okay, can I possibly write this without sounding like a guy? And mm-hmm. could I write this where it sounds like I'm trying to put my own experience into this experience and is this going to work? And it's kind of scary when you write something and then you're like, okay, now I have got to change enough of this that it's not going to look exactly like that story. And it's a hard thing, but it's like mm-hmm. – and then when I when I finished writing these pieces, I'm like, oh, you know, you're part of it is like, oh, shit. And then the next part is, well, I have to look at me one of these days. And I think I eventually did that. So it's like writing as therapy, I think. Um, One of the advantages slash disadvantages of book two is if if you read book one, there are some things about Shinta and Sahar that you know. Mm Mm-hmm. 
You know this is happening. It's confirmed when she meets Tempest and calls him her brother. Mm-hmm. And they keep talking about the lie. There's there's something there that Sahar isn't telling Jane. Mm-hmm. And they're choosing to ignore it. But they keep brushing up against it. Yep. And that that tension, that that argument between them that really keeps them from being as close as they could be. And if they just got it out of the way, or or if Jane let go of her anger a little bit, mm-hmm. this whole this whole thing would have gotten easier. Because the solution to the whole problem is laid right out by the dwarves at the very beginning. Um, but one of the one of the things that this book really offered me the chance to do is to look at some of the, the cultural conflict, the, the you know, the class conflict and the, the conflicts within the tribes of mankind on our planet, and give me a place to go. We can talk about this. And that was something that was really interesting for me in the early part of it when. You know, Jane is befriended by Marta, who is an orc, and immediate thought of orc, if you've read Tolkien or anything at all like that, it's, what the, this creature is helping her? And then, like you said, the dwarves, uh, the orcs, the, the different creatures, mm-hmm. and again, you you took an opportunity to go at the culture that we're sort of imbued with and took us in another place. One of the challenges I've always had with the Tolkien-esque orcs and and how a lot of writers have approached the the, the orc and ogreish creatures is those cultures can't survive. Cultures survive through communal cooperation. Yeah, and not. Everyone is going to think the same. I didn't want orcs to be some cookie-cutter bad guy. Right. So what if in the middle of this desert, you know, this desert that the sand is actually ground glass, you know, there were a tribe of people just trying to get by, but their culture was based on strength and dominance. They, you know, they, they had the concept that if an exceptional orc is born who is bright and magical and everything like that, well, when they reach adulthood, you kill them and eat them to share their power with the tribe. And that's what keeps them from evolving. Mm-hmm. With Marta, you have somebody who's not your typical orc. But the way their God tells them to behave is that you don't leave somebody wounded. Some tribes kill you so that you can come back as an orc and have a better life. The stone eye heal you and try to get you back to your people. Mm -hmm. They're going to make you work. So you're going to spend your time with them as a slave, but they're going to try to get you back to their people, to your people. 
Um, one of my favorite phrases that I have ever written are the first words that Marta says. When she looks at Jane and says, blood and bones, all you are is blood and bones. And it's like, there's the mindset. What are you at the level of blood and bones? Hmm. There's so much. Go ahead, go ahead. Jane survived. You know, when Marta found her, she was alive. And if you know anything about the desert, you're not going to last long naked in the desert. Yeah. So Marta already knew there was something special about this this one. Yeah. There is yes. a lot here. <laughs> there is so much in this. Now, I must ask, how many seeds are in the God Seed Saga? How many do you envision? I envision 13 books with 12 seeds. Ah. Uh. Fun note, you've actually met three of them. Okay. Okay, that's that, that that's my fun teaser for now. <laughs> you have met the last seed, the twelfth seed already mm-hmm. as one of the characters in book one. Oh, this could be interesting. And that is going to be a lot of – and for those who have read this, it's going to be, okay, which one is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, in the time we have, uh, we must continue Mm -hmm. here. You have – we talked a little bit about it. Uh, You've given me some ideas of your background and your growing up. We've touched Mm -hmm. on Tolkien. We've touched on D&D. Uh, one of my brothers would have great conversations with you about this. Um, (laughs) But in any case, um, you're growing up surrounding by the people that you have described and have brought to life mm-hmm. in the books. How about your reading? Um, what what were you reading? Because that always lays a foundation. Uh, my three favorite books as a kid were My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead George. Yep. Julie of the Wolves, also I believe by Jean Craighead George. I'm not 100% sure. And White Fang. Hmm. I I read White Fang enough that I went through four copies of it. Wow. Um, I also, I adore Dickens. Always have. And was trained in a, I went to high school for a school of the arts um, as an actor and specialized in Shakespeare. So, all of my reading was very much from the mind of the person you're telling the story. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're doing these, these character studies the way that these books are, because really that's what they are. They're not, you know, and they're written in first person. You need to climb into their heads. And that those stories that stuck with me, the ones that stuck me with ones that, I'm seeing the world that they're seeing it. I don't need the omniscient view. I need to know what these people are going through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shakespeare, and I also did a lot of um, Tennessee Williams, which oh, wow. I think that's part of where my, my pension for the heartbreak 
because he he was the king of heartbreak. Yeah. That no one's at fault. Heartbreak. Gonna go bad because it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's being the best that they can be, given the circumstances they were brought up with. But yeah, it's just gonna hurt until it doesn't anymore. And you know, with Edward, with Jane, especially with Jane. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I am I am happy to say that Jane <laughs> Jane actually has a happier ending than Ron Mar does. <laughs> but it's sort of a Ron finding. Mar- it's go ahead. Ron Mar's the easier read. Yes. Um, the very last chapter in Enchanta was one of those times that I had, I had absolutely no idea it was coming. It was never intentional. It just came out and I went, well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and as I read that through, I'm like, no, the clues were all there. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm like, okay, then, then, then I'm writing this right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did have one of the beta readers for Ron Ma ask me to give them a little bit more hints with Hunter and who he is, mm-hmm. and they still didn't guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you've you have built you've built a universe here that is that is going to be fascinating with each book as we go. Um I guess the next thing is when when is the next one do you do you envision coming out? Book 3 is um you know, book 3 was was derailed by having teenagers. First of all. <laughs> okay. Um I am I am turning my eyes back towards it more frequently. Um, the name is Merrick. The character is unsurprisingly because it's said at the end of Chanta, Mark. Um, and he's not who I'm talking about by the third the third seed that you've met. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying before you you know you weren't ready to handle your issues. In one of the books that you're writing, well, this is this is it's time for me to handle my issues. Uh-huh. Um, Mark, we meet him living in a sewer pipe. He's homeless. It's February. He's in New England, and there's an ice storm coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a situation I experienced. Um, one of the things that I succeeded at, he failed at, and I know where I was that day, and he attempts suicide, Mm -hmm. and we find he comes to, in the world of dragons, um, he, I'm, I'm kind of glad this isn't a video interview, because I'm, Thinking about it, it's the other thing that has derailed this is, is this is going to be hard to write during um, the current social situation with COVID. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. I think that's the thing. That is the thing right now that we are seeing with the pandemic. I mean, uh, I've written quite a bit more than I expected to this year myself, and that's nice, but I've also done a lot of editing. And it's very interesting to go back over the artwork, and, and or, you know, which is words for me, um, mostly. It's like something is – there is something about the concentration of that that allows you to revisit things or to dig things out of yourself. I, I already know I've dug something new out of myself this year, and I'm still asking, where did you come from? <laughs> the two the two big projects that have been haunting me, for lack of a better term, throughout the pandemic is, first of all, I'm an extrovert. I, I need the company of people, and that's just not there. You yeah. know, I have my wife and I have my son, and they are wonderful, but they're both introverts. So they're loving this. <laughs> and writing Merrick really makes me look at me and go, okay, where are you broken? So I've done a lot of writing. I have not done a lot of keeping. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I've written and then highlighted the entire paragraph to hit delete. Uh, the other project is the CD that I'm working on, which I ran into the same issue, is... I'll write lyrics and then I'll go to record them and I just can't. Um, So they're creeping along. Um, Merrick has ties to Jane. Uh, And so we do see Jane and Edward in, in book three. Um, Jane wants to rescue him, but can't because like she and Edward before, he has to go through these things himself. He has to come into his own. Yep. And he spends mm-hmm. just under a year completely isolated to the point where he forgets how to talk. Hmm. Which is why the people call him Merrick because he stuttered as he was trying to say Mark. Yep. And so we have this person who at one time was ready to try to save himself and feels that he failed. And how is he, how is he going to find the desire to save himself and accept himself and the help he's getting? Because if you, if you notice that we were introducing a culture primarily with, with each of the God seeds, with, with Chainta, we actually introduced three, but only two with any depth. Um, mm-hmm. We got to know the Pitterlings. Then we got to know the Orcs, and to a lesser degree, the Amontillari. With Merrick, we're going to get to know the, the dwarves. And that not all dwarves are the stereotypical live under the mountain, yo-ho-ho, go dig gold. <laughs> Um, he specifically runs into a bunch of maritime dwarves. Um, and again, once he's kind of in a place where he thinks he's safe, goes left. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it goes left in something that nothing could have controlled. The ship they're on gets hit by a storm. 
And so he starts off stranded, gets rescued, and then gets stranded again. But this time he's stranded with a couple of people. Um, uh, a wild breed woman who is a shaman and the first mate of the ship. And he's got to wrestle with how do I function with these people? So mm-hmm. First he's got to wrestle with how do I function at all? Yep. Um, I actually, I have one other book that was started. Um, that's not part of the God Seed saga, kind of space Western. Um, cool. And <laughs> it, it got left aside because the, the way that this topic world that it happens in existed was a little bit too close to what was happening for a few years there. So, Understood. Well, listen, where yeah. can we find the first two uh, books of the Godseed Saga? The first two books of the Godseed Saga are on Amazon, both available as both ebooks and in uh, paper format. Um, look up MJ Souter. It'll send you to my page. Um, well, all right. Well, listen... I really appreciate getting back in touch with you, and this has been quite a trip. These first two books of the saga, and I think they're going to—I think they're going to be much more exciting as time goes by. And again, this has been a, a great talk. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you too. I really appreciate it. All right. Our guest has been M.J. Souter, author of the God Seed Saga. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show part of the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey releases A Moment in the Sun, Live from the Cafe, and most recently, Searching for Roy Buchanan. The sequel to Searching, Call It Love, is set for release in the near future. This is the BookSpeak Network. 